0: I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder and CEO of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes and military veterans into becoming a professional salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? Today on the show, we've got Trent Staley. Trent, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Jared. Glad to be here. Um, I'm pumped to have you, man. It's going to be awesome. So um, Merchants of Change is, is really a show that we built for our audience, which is, is new, new salespeople and really people that are out there that are, are kind of considering a career shift into sales. And, and you know our mission. We've talked about it. We, we, we help elite athletes. And military veterans try to become elite sales professionals. Um, and and all of our guests are former athletes or veterans who've found success in sales. Um, and if and if it, where we like to start is kind of going into your starting with sports, talking about your transition, and ending with you know the the nuggets for our audience to to apply in their daily lives. So um, we always start with a, a very intentionally broad question. Um, if I asked you to recall some of your favorite memories from your swimming career, where does where does your mind drift off
1: to? Uh, I, mean, I love this question because swimming has been such an important part of my life. Uh, I think it's really shaped to me, second only to my parents. Um, and so, it's an important thing. I'm sure to many of the, the listeners as well. So. I can go all the way back to swimming became my sport because I was really bad at running and I couldn't throw and I couldn't catch. And so it was just like whittling down the list of sports that might be open to me. Uh, and I liked bouncing around in the water, you know, it was a comfortable environment for a fat little kid from Portland, Oregon. And so, you know, my, my memories start there with really good relationships with teammates and all of that stuff. But, you know, I got to about the age of 12, started to lose some of that baby fat and started to realize that I, I really loved the work. Uh, and you know, I listened to Tyler's episode, a prior one that you guys did, and and he talked about the relationships and nobody really loves the work. Maybe if you play a sport like basketball or football, that can be the case, but if you're swimming or you're running or you're cycling, I think you have to love the work. And that was a big thing for me all the way through my career. Definitely when I got to USC, training with the sort of people that I trained with, uh, you had to love the work. And if, if you weren't willing to come in and make that be a special thing, it was gonna be really tough to be a successful swimmer. And so um, I've got a lot of great memories from being at SC my freshman year. Uh, I did a set of five win thousands and my best time in a thousand coming out of high school was like 10:15 or something like that. This set was on an interval of 10 minutes and 30 seconds. And we were supposed to uh, build one to five, get faster each one of those those rounds. So I said to our coach, who had just gotten back from the Sydney Olympics, where he was the head coach, and I said, Mark, uh, my best time's at 10.15. I don't know if this is going to be a great set for me. And he said, no, it sounds like you're going to be going to best time on number two. And Mark was wrong. I actually went to best time on number one and got faster each of those five. And it was just like a paradigm shift for me, like, oh, I'm not in high school, like swimming's a different thing right now. And I still remember that thing because it it taught me a lot about your mindset and that, you know, you put certain limitations on yourself that really don't exist. And from then on, training was was a whole different ballgame.
0: I, so I love that answer um, for a couple different reasons. Um, it's been really cool for me. I, I grew up, as you know, Trent, playing all team sports, hockey, football, baseball. Um, I, I've obviously recently got big into golf, which is much more individual. Um, but now that we've been around for, you know, almost a couple of years here, we've, I've seen every type of athlete come through. Um, and when we talk to our, our athletes, the thing that we try to reset from a context perspective for them is like getting back into the dialed in, um, the dialed in version of themselves, right? Because when you're competing um, or you're serving in the military, you're dialed in every day. Mm-hmm. And what I've found is, and this is like across hundreds of athletes, the folks who play those sports that, you know, you're on a team, but a lot of the work is individual. Their ability to dial in is on a different level than the kids who sit in the locker room every single day and, and are on the field or ice with, you know, a hundred other people. Right. Um, so I appreciate that you said that because it's very true. Your, your appreciation of the work is different than a, than a team, than a, than a teammate athlete, if
1: you would. Yeah. Although you you still do have teammates, but it's just different. Right. But I would even say growing up swimming, you know, I, I swam from the age of six basically until 24. It was from 18 to 22 when I was at USC that swimming really was a team sport. It mattered so much more in a dual meet, picking up that fifth place finish in a race that maybe wasn't a primary race for you, but you were doing it because, you know, you're looking to get that team win. And so I, I got a little bit more of that during those four years of college. But then my last two years that I swam, it was back to just being about how fast can Trent go and, you know, what can Trent do? And so, Yeah, I I think now I'm going to jump ahead. As I think about hiring, there are certainly roles that I want to hire for that uh, would be better for a team athlete and others that would be better for an individual athlete. And so, you know, that is a consideration. But all of us end up being better off having done sports. And so um, that's why I I love what it is that you guys are doing. And just I, I said this to you before, this is something that I've thought about since I was probably 22. And I never figured out how to turn it into a business. Never figured out how to make it be, uh, you know, the the organization that you guys have. And I think it's just so cool what you guys have done.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And 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 speaking of teammates, like so, those four years at USC. When you think of like some of your favorite teammates from that period, what are some of the traits and, and characteristics that they they have in common?
1: Uh, we very much had a work hard, play hard culture. Love that. Yeah. Um, the guys who I most wanted to emulate were the ones that um, you know, on a Tuesday or or, you know, we didn't have practice on Wednesday morning or a Saturday night went hard, but never missed a workout. Never like phoned in a set, like were there diligently striving to be better at the pool. Now, as I've gotten older, I've recognized that maybe some of the other behaviors were reckless and we didn't need to be doing all those other things but i really admired the people who it didn't matter what had happened outside of the pool once they were there inside of you know the the walls of of that swimming facility were dialed in i i love it
0: well that that explains why we get along so much uh trent because my 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 philosophy and i learned this from my dad was if you're going to howl with the wolves you need to crow with the roosters. Um so I I can appreciate the work hard play hard mentality. How do you, how do you think um your teammates would describe
1: you from from your swimming days? I think that they would describe me as being determined. I mean I was homeschooled. I like swimming was my thing. I was so passionate about swimming. I ended up being this is part of why I said, you know, I've thought about this for so many years. When I graduated from SC I didn't know what it was that I wanted to do, and that's why I kept swimming for another two years. Is I just needed to delay it to figure out what the heck came next because swimming had been just the centerpiece of, of everything that I'd done, and I went through that depression that I think many athletes do coming out of swimming because identity is so tied up in swimming career, and so you know I think that that's probably what they would. I was a swimming nerd. I was totally. A, I was a pool rat. I was into the the process and i loved racing but i loved coming to practice i mean that the endorphins that you get out of working hard and all that stuff i was totally addicted to and um you know part of probably why i struggled afterwards is because i just removed all exercise from my life for a while and i was just in a free fall there and so um i think they would probably they would describe me as being really committed really determined
0: that's that's a that's a great review to get um now, I, I'm gonna say this and our other guests are gonna get angry, but I think you have probably the coolest uh roster of of jobs um in terms of what you've done. I'm I'm curious to know, like when when you you know, that period is brutal, by the way. I went through it. That's why I started a company because I wish it was ex- I wish it existed during that like 24 month period where I was, I was lost and confused and depressed and anxious and all those things that you experienced. But, you know, you, you've done a lot of cool stuff. I I imagine like, did you know exactly what you wanted to do as you were wrapping up your swim career
1: or like, how did you figure that out? I really didn't. So I swam those extra two years. Uh, I went to therapy for the first time uh, in that last year of swimming and really, that was just to like talk me into it being okay to not being a swimmer anymore. Now I probably should have continued to see someone afterwards, but I didn't. I just figured, you know, now I'm going to go do my thing. But I I left so I left SC in 2004 after uh, the Olympic trials. I in the 2000 and 2004 trials obviously did not make the team. The most upsetting thing in the world, even when you ha- ha- are a dark horse, very unlikely uh, former to make the team, it's wholly upsetting to have your focus for four years being to achieve something and for not to happen. So, uh, immediately after I graduated in 2004, I said, I'm just gonna, you know, figure things out, slow play it. But, uh, it took about two months for me to say, I gotta go back and swim. And so I moved to Seattle, swim two years up in Seattle and then, uh, finally decided it's time to be done moved back down to LA where my network was. I totally bought into the whole Trojan family. I'm going to find a job that way. And was fortunate. The dean of the business school at USC, I actually was a communications major, but he was just a, a wonderful human. He put me in contact with several of, of his circle. Uh, and one of those guys, Brad Ball, who'd been the CMO at McDonald's and the president of film marketing at Warner Brothers, met me for an informational interview. We grabbed coffee and a Barnes and Noble. And what I thought was going to be, you know, 45 minutes with this guy who was too big a deal for me turned into three hours of the two of us sitting and talking. And he left Warner's and had set up his own little consulting thing. And he said, why don't you just come work for me? And so that was really the the gateway out was this guy who just was willing to take an interest in me. And without any skills, without any direction, give me a chance to come learn from him. He then joined uh, an advertising agency, Maroc Partners, which JR is actually our mutual connection, a, a friend from that world. Um, and then Brad left to go to NASCAR. And so Brad really hired me three times. Wow. And each one of those hires was critically important in taking my career to the next level. He's still... My mentor, he's still just a a lovely, lovely friend. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I I was totally adrift and Brad helped to give me direction and you know, teach me the ways. I was just talking to somebody about those early years of your career. And if Brad was in the office, I was gonna be in the office. If Brad was gonna stay until eight or nine o'clock at night, and I could just sit in his office and listen to him muse on something. I was absolutely going to do that because it was just, it was so much knowledge that I could download. I didn't, I didn't do an internship, you know, I was swimming every summer. I, I didn't do those things that so many students or young professionals do. I, I, you know, I started my career at 24, not 22. And so I felt like I was in catch up mode and Brad really created the opportunity to do that. So that, that was a big thing. Another piece in really getting me into sports the way that I have is. From the age of 16, I was involved in the governance of swimming, so at a local level uh, as a teenager, and then eventually joined the board of directors of USA Swimming. So uh, starting at, I think, 22, I was a member of the board of directors, and I was on the board for six years. And so that just exposed me to things that uh, you wouldn't typically get exposed to and gave me an appetite for um sponsorships and for you know all sorts of different governance pieces that have now become a part of my career
0: it i mean that's an unbelievable story and by the way for those listening like please take notes because w- trent we see this all the time one way that we get candidates into our program is is like like anyone we we do a job posting like hey former college athletes um you know if you're interested in sales please apply to shift groups program And we see these kids like from schools like like USC, not USC specifically, but like UCLA, Duke University, like these like storied, storied educational institutions that are finding us on Indeed or ZipRecruiter. And like in the back of my head, I'm happy because I know that they're going to do really good work and we're going to we're going to find them something awesome and help them kind of redial in. Their old, their old characteristics and mindsets. But in the back of my head, I'm like, how are, how are you not activating your alumni now? Like, how are you not thinking about that as an option? And I think the schools in general, um, not every school, but a lot of them take, take that for granted and they don't do a good job of like, and, and at 22, you don't quite understand the shared experience that you have with somebody like, like your mentor. Uh, that you can that you can build from like you're not starting from scratch in a relationship you have a shared experience that you can build off of and we're actually building a program now for underclassmen to learn how to network well their underclassmen and start to build relationships with alumni so that when they do get out whether that's right after graduation or after they play professionally for a few years they can activate that network a lot quicker so I love that you talked about that. That's huge. And obviously with a school like like SC, an, a complete no-brainer. That, that's one impressive
1: dude. Um, truly. And and I would say the networking is something we can probably talk about on just about every question. Networking is critically important, and I'll leave some of it for later. But I should have done a better job of it when I was in school. I was just fortunate that one individual was willing to open his network up to me. Yep. Um, but sort of, you you started to touch on this, which I think is really important too. I undervalued what it was that I'd gotten from 20 years of swimming. I, you know, I, I knew that I was a hard worker and, you know, all that stuff, but I didn't realize how much of it was going to translate into the business world and how much of my swimming career really was akin to the sort of experiences that kids were getting in doing internships. You know, I was the captain of the team at SC, like the, there were responsibilities that were on my shoulders that are different from just somebody going to to classes at SC and not participating in another group, right? And so there was a block for me in those first years around my stuff mattering the way that I now, in retrospect, see that it did. And so I lacked confidence in those first few years that I, I look back on and... Feel sorry about because I, I deserve to to go into interviews with more confidence than I ever did. I was scared to death when I was going into those initial interviews because I just was like, what do I have to show? Right? Like, I, I haven't done anything. And being an athlete in any sport, but I'll, I know someone the best, you know, you're hypercritical of yourself. And I knew how many strokes it took me to get across the pool. I constantly had my eyes on the clock, you know, all these things that. I judged myself off of day in and day out all of a sudden you don't have any of those things as touch points and like you just you feel adrift I used that before yeah. like that that's really what it was
0: yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. and the funniest thing is is like if you have somebody that can show you that understanding your strokes keeping an eye on the clock those are actually very applicable to the real world um you just need somebody to to tell you that and explain it to you, and that's hopefully what what we get to do every single day um now what what do you if you were thinking about that transition you went through the interviews you, you ended up getting a job what what was the hardest part of going from being in a pool every day to commuting to an office every day
1: so i I pretty easily got into just the structure of being in the office and all that, and I think it's because swimming is so structured you wake up you know there was a time in high school where practice started at 4:45 right like i'm used to things that are uncomfortable in those sort of ways and i'm also used to mostly working in anonymity you know there weren't a lot of people showing up to swim meets at usc even um, you know i don't know why we were a bunch of guys in great shape running around in speedos i would have thought that we would have drawn better than we did but you know <laughs> whatever so i understood going to the office every day and didn't really find that to be a struggle. It goes back to what I was saying before though. The lack of milestones that gave me a sense of how I was performing was rough. You know, I I knew my world ranking for like the last eight years that I swam. I knew everyone who was faster than I was in the Turner backstroke. And for that to all of a sudden be gone to be an account executive at an advertising agency and Not even knowing how good I was compared to the other account executives at that little advertising agency was tough. Like I was untethered in those moments. And so that was the hardest thing was just wrapping my head around finding purpose in everything that I did and creating milestones for myself. And, And in some ways, you know, this is a silly thing, but I really got into washing dishes. I loved washing the dishes because I could see something that was a mess go to being something that was complete and clean and like there was there was like this accomplishment there like it was trackable versus so much of the work that i did that just would go on and on and on for for weeks and especially in sales roles you can struggle for wins and you can work tirelessly and not see that turn into anything that's that's tough and so i i think i i advise others to find something doesn't need to be washing dishes, but you find something that on a regular basis you can see come to resolution, because if you have that to anchor you, then those other things that are outside of your control so much of the time that you're just you're you're pining for a certain result. Like you take a little bit of pressure off of it.
0: It's uh, it, that's really good. And and dishes is a good example, but it, sh- it can show up in a lot of different ways. I love that. Um, You, you look back at, you know, I, I, I think about this sometimes, but I look back at kind of the early days of, of my career and there's definitely certain things where I'm like, man, I wish I, I wish I did this, or I wish I did that more, or, you know, even at all, when you think about the early days of your career, is there anything that you'd do over
1: if you had the chance? So this is highly applicable here. I grew up with a father that was in sales and i saw the ups and the downs of that one and i was fearful of sales for that reason because i wanted stability in my life in a way that i didn't always see it as a kid and so i basically shunned sales and it was only as i got later into my career did i realize that every job i'd done actually was sales it just came under the guise of something different so partnerships i my first job at NASCAR was in entertainment marketing. And basically I was taking our fan base and going to a showrunner, a director, a writer, whomever, and saying, Hey, we want to get NASCAR involved in your project. We'll bring our fan base. You give us the exposure to a different audience. And so like I was constantly negotiating, I was constantly doing sales in so many other jobs. I just was unwilling to to acknowledge it as what it was and i wish that i'd wrapped my arms around that one sooner because i think that i would have gotten more direct education around being a good salesperson if i would actually acknowledged that what i was doing was sales
0: yeah, well, yeah I, I always i think so. the sales profession has maybe the worst pr engine in the world because it's really? just it's like a four-letter word but it's if you really understand what your job is which is to help you know customers solve problems and achieve Achieve their goals with with whatever your solution is. It really doesn't actually matter. Um, you, you you're you're the same as a as a you know pop, like one of the big five consulting firms or anything like like that. It's the only difference is you ask you have to ask people for attention at the beginning and then you have to ask them for money at the end. Everything else is the same as a consultant, in my opinion. Um, now now selfishly, Trent, this our our introduction was really well timed. We talked about. We had just we just signed up uh, uh, our first really media and advertising customer, um, a firm that owns you know hundreds of radio stations across forty five or so different markets. And you know our our podcast to date we've had tech salespeople, medical and pharma sellers, and as you as you mentioned a, a, an insurance professional. We haven't had anyone in the media business on the podcast. Can you talk a little bit like what are salespeople or account directors? In the media business, actually selling like what is the product? How would you describe that? Yeah,
1: so in general, it's uh, it's any of those things that we care about. It could be radio, it could be a podcast like we're on right now. It could be a television show. It could be uh, a billboard inside of a stadium. Right? It's it's getting it's selling inventory that's adjacent to things that people care about. So in the case of Cast Iron Media. Uh, we sell, for the most part, uh, the live game streaming inventory of professional sports leagues. So if you watch a major league baseball game and it goes to break and you're watching on your Apple TV, on MLB.TV, goes to break, you see an ad there. It was either the league's team or our team that sold that inventory. And so it we're, we're going out to media buyers at major agencies most of our clients are are the big holding companies that have multiple agencies underneath them that's the most efficient place for a company um our age to go out and and do business we're going and we're talking about the size of the audience the uniqueness of the audience the affluence of the audience the diversity of the audience all those different things and how that aligns with the brands that they're representing so that we're able to bring that audience to them by creating this opportunity for ads to run during those those breaks we do a lot of other things and so we don't really refer to ourselves as just being a media sales company we talk about being a solutions company in sports so we do the stuff inside of those live game broadcasts um but we also create custom solutions for brands inside of stadiums we do social media campaigns um, can't talk about this one yet, but the most famous filmer in the world uh, just did some stuff with us a couple of weeks ago, which was a fun sort of full circle moment where he was creating some content for us. And so we, re- whatever it is that our partners need within the sports space, we find a way to deliver. But most of our business really is in that uh, streaming live game space because that's just that's where so many eyeballs are shifting. That's that's really the the main consumption point. Actually, just this past month, uh, cable and broadcast became less than 50% of how it is that people view content on their TVs. And so streaming has now surpassed it. So you probably hear in the news talk about the regional sports networks and, and struggles with them. Um, the reason is people are changing their behaviors and are now getting their Content on their TVs through an internet connection instead of through a cable connection.
0: Wow, that's a crazy stat. I mean, I knew it was coming, but that's that's incredible. Um, I, I actually think these other industries, by the way, could could use and steal something from your industry. Which I like the way I think about it is your job. Like we talk about becoming a subject matter expert in your customer. Uh, obviously, your your solution, but but mainly your customer. And I think with in your business, it's really becoming a subject matter expert in your customer's customer. And I think if 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 technology, pharma, and med device and insurance folks uh, did that, they'd they'd be a lot better at their job if they really understood their customers' customer. So um, that's why I love this space, and I'm I'm really excited to
1: expand there. Um, so that's actually that's an interesting point. And my last role at NASCAR was. With the partnership team. And so NASCAR, no one's gonna be surprised to hear this, is highly sponsor-driven. And so the sponsors of the leagues get taken care of well. And much of why they're taken well care of well is because the partnership team becomes absolute experts in the business of the partners. Um, the guy who led our team, Lou Garotti, now at Twitch and, and killing it. Uh, Lou would talk about our account managers needing to be able to go and be brand managers at any one of our customers go be a brand manager at ford go be a brand manager at um, mars you know on the m ms part of the business whatever that was and if we weren't that dialed into what was going on with our partners then we weren't doing our jobs the right sort of way and i think we we try and apply that at cast iron too where our sales team is trying to put themselves into the shoes of the person on the other side of the table and what is it that they need we even our marketing materials are contoured to the audience. You know, it'd be easy to just talk about fans, 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 fans. But like, how does this matter to the person sitting across the table? How are we going to help them be more successful at their jobs? What what can we do to anticipate their needs and create solutions for them? You know, it starts with with listening, really. And that's the most indispensable tool of a salesperson is listening. If you're not listening, you are... You are you know, totally doing wrong by the the person you're selling to. And, you know, you hear all those adages, two ears, one mouth, like all that stuff. They're, we all know it to be true. But oftentimes, I think sellers get excited about what it is that they get to sell. And they get so hyped up on delivering the message that they've practiced. And in doing so, they've totally missed the opportunity. You know, us having as many different assets as we have, allows us to pivot to actually deliver what it is that a client needs. And too often, I think we get stuck being like, oh, we know what they're gonna need going in. And we don't hear what it is that truly is gonna win the day. And so the most important thing is that we stop and we listen. And I was in a pitch two days ago in Chicago and our sales team member just crushed it. He did such a good job of asking questions and allowing them to lead the conversation it changed really the direction of of the presentation in a really positive way and you know I don't, I don't know that that was necessarily a client that we were gonna to win over but at the end of it they were asking for we call it max avails they want to know how many impressions are available in some markets so they understand how big the reach could be and they were asking for this stuff and i'm certain that it was because he listened and let them lead the conversation instead of thinking that he knew the direction that he needed to go in. So sorry to derail, but like when we start to talk about listening, I, I am passionate about this one. Same here, man. Same here. I and and,
0: and, it, and it and it you see it a lot in younger salespeople. Like when I when I led big teams, um, I actually was talking about this story last night, very similar to what you just talked about. We had this rep who worked this deal. At a convention center for like nine months and we were able to get a meeting with like the this top decision maker in in tech it was the chief information officer and she had this like long deck talking about how they were going to save them money in their in their like data center so we went to the meeting and i was like don't present the deck let's just listen to him and he spent the meeting was 30 minutes long he spent 25 minutes talking about how all all he's worried about is the Wi-Fi in the convention center. These this is a big convention center in Massachusetts. Gets like 30 to 40,000 visitors when they do events there a day. And literally at the end, I just said to him, I'm like, "Listen, we can save you hundreds of thousands of dollars in your data center that you can reallocate towards this Wi-Fi project that you're focused on." He signed the agreement. We we went in the parking lot. We changed the deck that that I didn't let her present. To the wi-fi project and he literally signed the next day and 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 you know we had a great solution and you know she was ready to pitch it but you know that's the difference and and sometimes you need to lose a couple you know a couple engagements to really understand that it nobody cares about you it's about them right um I, one thing i, I want to pick apart a little bit because it's it feels like it feels like there's almost two types of roles in your space it's like account management and then like new business hunting, do you want to talk about like the the differences there?
1: Definitely in, in a company like NASCAR that exists in a very clear way. So mm-hmm. I was not on, on the sales team, I was on the partnership team. And so the sales team would go out, they would prospect, they would pitch, they would start to develop what a partnership could look like, um, The best salespeople would then tap the partnership team in to talk through what is actually achievable, because sometimes salespeople get overly confident in what could work. And it doesn't necessarily always align with the realities of the business. But, you know, I I had a great relationship with a lot of the sales team and and still do. Um, So you would work with the partnership team because ultimately the deal is going to be handed off to that partnership team and they're going to have to fulfill and they're going to have to renew. So that was something even for me with a partner that my team inherited that had a storied relationship with NASCAR, had been around for decades. I came in and inherited a contract and an agreement and thought, you know what, they're a CPG brand. I was like, I think that we can help them drive more sales, right? Like there are some some plans that immediately I can think of that we can start to implement that are going to help drive more sales for them. and what i quickly realized this goes back to the prior conversation was that that's not why they were in the sport they were in the sport for the hospitality they were in the sport for the access they were in the sport for a lot of different reasons and when i came at them trying to make it be about you know we can drive more business at walgreens they're like cool but that's not why we're here and so you know understanding that one is really really important and i think is akin to what you're talking about with the the wi-fi is just You have to get some of them wrong. And I definitely got it wrong on on that one to then figure out what it is that you need to, to do right. So, back to answering your question, I was responsible for about 16 of the partnerships that NASCAR had. And we took care of them, we fulfilled them in an account management sort of role. But then, as you were getting close to the end of that agreement, you would need to dive in, put together proposals, just like you were pitching a new business to come up with the argument for why it is that they should stay involved and really we're always looking to upsell them like how do we get them more deeply involved in the sport sure they've got category exclusivity but let's get them activating at the racetrack let's get them uh doing uh, you know a series on nascar.com what, whatever it might have been um so we were not out there having to break open a new account but we absolutely were still doing the same sort of sales process that you're doing in any number of different businesses
0: And, and and to kind of put a, put a cherry on top of that, it's, it's, it really comes down to the, the biggest thing, the biggest skill that can help you be that person that can grow an account, which is what you're talking about really comes down to listening and paying attention to their needs and what they're focused on. Right. Absolutely. Love it. Um, now I want to transition a little bit, um, something that's close to my heart, which is, you know, being a leader and building teams. Um, now, when you think about, you know, you guys are, are obviously growing and, and, and I know you're hiring. That's kind of how we got connected. What, what kind of people are you trying to hire and, and how do you find them in, in your space?
1: Yeah, so we've got a lot of different roles. And so it's a different answer for different parts of the business. But on the sales team side, a lot of the people that we've hired to date because of being young and wanting to grow quickly are people that have years of experience within media sales. So we're looking for people that have strong relationships with brands and they need to be the right sort of brand. So much of what we do is selling at a local or regional level versus the leagues that are selling at a national level. So just an example would be an um, automaker. They run national ads that have the big celebrity in the spots and they're sexy and they play up the the car, the SUV or truck or whatever it is. That's a deal that would be done by the league. Tier 2, where we're selling, is more about the incentives, here's what the opportunity is, go to your local Chevy dealer, that sort of a thing that is more about the transaction. Um, And so we're out selling to them. And so I want people on our team as we're hiring, as we've been hiring, to have those relationships where they can go and get in front of the agency for Chevy to say, hey, We have the right demographics for you. We've got the right reach for you. Here's something that we think is going to work really well for your business. And so that's been a lot of who we've been hiring to date. But as you and I've spoken, we're graduating into a place where we want to train people. And so we want people who are going to be great networkers. That goes back to what we talked about before. And great listeners. If you're, and is willing to work hard because sometimes (laughs) we get people who, come across really well on a zoom or whatever it is, but they don't have that understanding of the work that's going to have to go into it or the determination to fight through the times that suck, because there are definitely going to be times that suck in sales. And you're, we hire people that have great relationships and have done great things in their career. And it takes six or nine months for them to get ramped up and really be hitting. And I watch the struggle that they go through because they're not used to that sort of reset that they're having to do Um, but the ones that are that are committed to their craft and to working hard always get to the other side of that one and find success so that's the sales role Now we do have account management people we have planners we have others that you know it's really really important that they have great attention to detail right like that's that's something that i think is cannot be valued enough is attention to detail we can't get plans wrong. If we get plans wrong, then we're running the, the wrong ad in the wrong market and we're wasting our money because ultimately we're going to be the ones who jump on that grenade. We're not going to put that pain on someone else. That, that's our screw up, right? And so um, it's really, really important that people that we hire into those jobs they don't have to necessarily be the best networkers. They certainly need to be good listeners. That's a universal, but they've got to be really diligent to pay attention to each and every input that they put into our, our system
0: yeah yeah that that makes a ton of sense and and it's gonna be the the funny thing about a lot of that stuff is some of that stuff is really hard to interview for right like like you said someone can come across great on a zoom but to your point there's going to be adversity to fight through there's also generally and i talk about this a lot there's a lot of stuff you have to do as a salesperson that you're never going to enjoy like i've been doing it for 16 years i still you know, I do it. I pick up the phone and make a cold call. And I, I have friends that love it. Um, I don't love it. Like, I, you know, it's not something I, I, I like I want to do every single day. I do it every day, but it's not something I love. So you've got to you know, we talk about with our veteran, our veterans understand this inherently, which is you've got to embrace the suck a little bit. And you've got to find people that are OK with
1: embracing the suck. You know what I mean? Totally. So there's a uh, John Hamm in Mad Men quote where he says that's what the money's for. And before I even saw that Mad Men scene, I thought about the fact that working in sports especially is a cool place to be, right? Like, it's cool to go to the racetrack. It's cool to go to the ballpark. It's like, all that stuff is great. And a lot of people focus on that part. Well, guess what? We get volunteers to come in and do that part of the job. Like, we don't have to pay you for that part because that is cool and that is fun. We pay you to sit at your desk and sit through meetings that you don't want to be in, to send emails that you feel like you shouldn't have needed to send. Like It's all that stuff that we're paying you for. The fun stuff, we're not paying you for. That's fun stuff. And it's really fortunate that we get to work in an industry where there is that fun side. But whether there's the fun side or not, back to John Hamm, that's what the money's for. You get paid to do the stuff that's not fun.
0: Oh my god! I love that. I've I've, I've watched uh, Mad Men, but I don't remember that. But I love that's what the money is for. That's incredible. It's perfect, man. It is. Oh, I, you just you
1: just gave me a LinkedIn post. <laughs> so there, there are two quotes from from shows slash movies that I probably have overinvested in. That being one, and then in Zero Dark Thirty, there's a scene where the CIA director is talking to the whole team who's supposed to be tracking down Bin Laden. And he basically is screaming at them. There's, there's not another team sitting on some other floor of this building doing this thing. Like it's all on you. And I I think about that one, obviously far lower stakes, but I think about that relative to business all the time, that if you don't do what it is that you're supposed to do, it's not like there's somebody else that's sitting out there. Who's like, just going to do it right. Like it, it really is on you. So don't, don't, Count on there being some other floor full of people that are just waiting to catch you know whatever it is that you don't cover. Like it's on you.
0: Love that. Love that. It's a, it's accountability, right? it's Personal accountability. You got to have it. Or or sales sales isn't isn't really a fit. Um, you talked about uh, you know your your SC alum mentor. Um, is there a like a, a meaningful impact or or a highlight? for one of the lessons that that you think was the biggest one you learned from him that you want to highlight
1: before we get into the closing questions? I mean, I, I think it was more like the example that he set for me. Brad had already achieved, right? Like I was catching him on the tail end of his career. He'd done amazing, amazing things, but he didn't stop being creative. He didn't stop thinking about what was in the best interest of our clients. He didn't, He wasn't phoning any of it in. He was, like I said, he was staying in the office until eight o'clock at night when he didn't have to, right? Like Brad made all the money he needed to make and Brad had achieved the highest of heights within his marketing profession, but Brad was still committed to achieving. And I loved seeing that and it certainly has driven me to do the same sort of thing. And I hope that I present that same example that I saw from Brad so the rest of our team. So good.
0: I think, you know, anybody that gets to the level you have or I have in their career can look back at somebody like that and and really appreciate what what that that little lesson of like it's almost like, you know, not to be corny, but it's like stay hungry, right? Like stay dialed in. Like just because, you know, you achieve this financial outcome or or whatever doesn't mean like, you know, it's like uh uh success is, success is, what is it? Success is leased, not owned, and rent is due every single day, right? Like, and guys like Brad are, are critical to come across in your life to
1: understand that. I You know, I'm so thankful to have worked for Brad at the beginning of my career. I think that working for Brad was more important than working at some place, a brand that people know, right? Like, I started with him at... Ball Entertainment Group, right? Like no one's ever heard of Ball Entertainment Group because it was just a little shingle that Brad had. But the opportunity that I had in those first few years with him were critical in setting me off in the path that I've been on ever since. And this, you know, I see so many college kids who want to talk to me about getting a job at the Portland Trailblazers or at the 49ers or whatever it is. And yeah, that's great. It's more important that you learn the right sort of skills early in your career and establish the sort of work ethic that you're going to apply the rest of your life than it is to go work there. Because if you network the right way, guess what? You can go work for the Trailblazers or the 49ers later on. And and, oh, by the way, you're going to get paid a whole lot more for that subsequent job than you would at that first job because there's a million people that are clamoring for those entry-level opportunities. And because of that, they don't pay that well. And so if you can go learn from the right person refine skills that are going to be applicable back into sports like you're so much better off cutting your teeth someplace else than trying to just get into sports on day 1
0: i love it uh you got to listen to this week's episode that just launched uh because i literally had the exact same answer for what to look for in your first job nothing to do with the product the brand it's the person that you're going to work with and for and it's got to be somebody you admire that 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 Foundationally represents where you want to go um, because of all the stuff you just mentioned it's so it.
1: important we, we I think early on we get enamored with the brand like I have to go work for this place like i've I've always wanted to work for fill in the blank and I think you set yourself up for failure so often there no, I think that the model is also wrong that that people get taken advantage of in highly sought after companies and industries, but that being what it is gosh like i really am thankful that i learned from brad ball that was the most important thing for me out of the gates amazing um
0: well listen last two questions trent um we ask every single guest these two questions uh first one is we ask our guests to highlight one of the skills that's made really made them elite in their profession what what do you think your your like top number one skill is that's translated to you know that that kind of
1: Elite execution. Well, I sh- should say listening. Based upon everything else that I, I was, was gonna, gonna say, yeah. I don't say listening. It, like, does that invalidate everything that I've said previously? <laughs> I, no. I think I think that my work ethic really is has been it. I think that's the thing that I brought from swimming that is going to take me everywhere else. I don't ask anyone to do anything at Cast Iron that I wouldn't do myself. Right? Like, I I will roll up my sleeves and work for. However long it takes to see something through, and I think that that that's really been the thing that's that's carried me through my career.
0: I love it, and and you know we talk about uh, work ethic, and and in my brain when I say work ethic, I mean the the antithesis to entitlement. Like nobody owes you. nobody cares. Work harder, right? Like that's that's what we try to drill into our people. Like nobody owes you anything. You got to go out and earn it every single day. So I couldn't agree more. I think I'm probably very similar to you in that. Um, now this is gonna be another one we're listening probably is gonna to, gonna to be a, a good fit, but we we think like I, I was raised uh with a with a coach as a father, um, you know, hall of fame hockey coach, and he really instilled into us this idea of professionalism. And like whatever you do, um, be dialed in and, and do it as best as you can. So we think that the highest praise you can give a salesperson is calling them a pro. So what <laughs> What does being a pro in sales mean to you? And 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 it's okay to use a previous answer.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's got to be listening is is critically important here. But I think that it's also just being prepared, right? Like I think that being a pro is the person who's done all the work so that when they get to game time, they're ready to go. Now you know, different in in the business world, listening really is the way that you respond to the opposing team, right? Like, and so. I think listening is the right answer here, but when I just think about it more globally, it's preparation. It's it's putting the time in. When no one else is looking, it's preparing your presentation, it's doing your research. Like the worst I ever feel is when I'm sitting someplace and I know I don't have all the information that I could have. Right? Like I I haven't done all the preparation work that would allow me to sit in that meeting and be dynamic and impactful and all of that and so i think really that's what it is it's preparation which includes listening
0: i love it i love it trent this was incredible episode i'm i'm really excited uh to get this in front of our audience man thank you i know you're super busy i really appreciate you giving us a whole hour man this was awesome thank you so much for
1: joining us glad to do it i i love what it is that you guys are are doing and i'm excited for cast iron to be a part of it love it thank you very much Trent. thanks Ben. this
0: wraps up this episode of merchants of change if you enjoyed this episode the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts if you're interested in working with us please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io